Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you all here. And uh, I want to welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, we will discuss regenerative hepatology from stem cells to tissue engineering. And I actually have the pleasure to host and moderate this, this Easel Studio in the very good company of Professor Karen Piper Hanley, Professor Frederick Lemagre, and Professor Tobias Kentz. So the field of regenerative hepatology as you all know it, is, is something that has been progressing in the past decades quite fast when with new therapies, with new products, trying to give answers to decades and centuries old problems, which is liver regeneration and liver disease. In general, regenerative hepatology constitutes this interdisciplinary branch of biomedical research and hepatology in particular, which focuses on the developing science and tools to repair or replace the damaged liver. So you might work in liver fibrosis, liver steatosis. But in the end, I mean, most of you actually are working in regenerative hepatology because as we are, you're also trying to repair and regenerate the liver. So in the end, I think we're all pretty much in the same basket or pretty much working in the same field towards patients good, I would say. So major contributions in this effort derived from tissue engineering, stem cell biology and detective manufacturing. And this is actually where easel has been, I would say, at the forefront of the field. Because uh, a few years ago, we went by initiative of Professor Massimo Pinzani, uh, a group of us actually put together in what we call now the EASL Consortium for Regenerative Hepatology, which really addresses a lot of these problems. And historically, we've been devoted to three main research programs, or three pillars as we call them, to develop cell therapies in bioengineered bile ducts to be used in liver transplants and congenital biliary diseases, create a five to 10% bioengineered liver mass in order that we can treat uh, or to implant this and in, in treat inherited hepatic metabolic diseases. And then the, our ultimate goal, which I think it's uh, actually the goal of many people here listening uh, today and, uh, and worldwide, at least patients also want this, is to create a more than 30% bioengineered liver mass that we can transplant in patients with acute, acute on chronic liver failure. And as you guys know, so there's uh, very many, many challenges in this. There's many things that we still need to do, but the field is not only devoted to this. And when you look into stem cells, uh, cell therapies, uh, small molecules, tissue engineered products, gene therapies, and then the ultimate goal of liver bioengineering, there's really a lot that we need to do. And this is exactly what we're gonna be discussing today. And we'll start with the basics, I would say. Uh, we started back in the nineties with cell therapies. Uh, but where we are today, we're still, I think, a little bit far away from a validated, uh, reproductive or reproducible stem cell therapy or any type of liver cell therapy that can actually heal patients in a more or less predictable way. And this is where I pass the word to, to, to my friend, Tobias Kanz, and ask him, so what do you think we need to do to actually make this field actually something palpable, something crystallized that patients actually know that this is the therapy we'll give you if you have chronic liver failure. So what's your view on this? 
Yeah, thank you, Peter, for for setting up the field uh, so nicely. Um, I think, um, yeah. So the so the breakthrough of, of cell therapy was um, when when we learned how to cultivate um, yeah liver cells, hepatocytes, at least for a short term, and to to isolate them from the liver and being able to transplant then via the portal vein into to the liver. And I think there we have a kind of a spec, special um, histo architecture in the liver where we have the, the portal vein that, that then terminally branches in, into the liver sinusoids, um, where we have an, an efferent vessel that, that brings cells into the parenchyme and through the, the fenestrations of the liver sinusoids, the, the hepatocytes, isolated hepatocytes can basically squeeze in the parenchyme and then can repopulate the liver. So I think this was done in animal experiments, of course, first, and then in, in a few patients. And um, despite, let's say, the metabolic success, when these cells were transplanted, um, one had to realize that it's very difficult to get enough cells into the livers. And um, I think one of the, the bottlenecks still is that, that we can probably only provide a smaller percentage you named like three to five percent which is one of the goals that can repopulate the liver by this approach safely and um, this will only help a few patients maybe those with metabolic disorders where the transplanted cells mm -hmm. have then a polar advantage or some other disorders where only let's say a small um, um, a smaller let's say level of enzymatic activity is needed but it would be difficult um, to replace the full liver with, with this approach. And um, of course, the cellular transplants, they are also prone to immunorejection. So we face the same, if not even worse, immunorejection problems than compared to the full organ transplant. And I think that the latter is um, one of the most bottlenecks in, in liver mm -hmm. cell transplantation approaches if it comes to the, to the hepatocyte transplantation. But we have to give immunosuppression. It's difficult to monitor the, the small cellular transplant. And so those pediatric patients that, that need to receive such a therapy, they are just better with a liver transplant. And I think it's time to acknowledge um, the surgeons for their um, progresses in, in, hepat in hepatic or in liver transplantation, split liver transplantation, long-term immunosuppression, preconditioning of the transplant, everything of these aspects has kind of eased the liver transplantation approaches so that from a clinical perspective, this has somehow outcompeted, let's say, mm -hmm. some of the liver cell transplantation approaches. I think as soon as we have a regimen where we wouldn't need immunosuppression for liver cell transplants, there might be then the, the flipping point where cellular transplant might be better. And so this is basically hereditary diseases where, where the liver cell transplant would basically be something like a gene therapy. And again, there we have also the competition with the non-viral gene therapy approaches emerging right now. There's also therapies where we just want to kind of fight liver injury, liver inflammation, um, liver fibrosis with these other cell types. So mesenchymal stem cells, progenitor cells has been discussed to be one of those sources which with strong um, anti inflammatory pro-regenerative function. Um, there's quite some, let's say, clinical work ongoing there. Um, I'm not so much in front of these. I'm, I'm much more a fan of, let's say, more targeted approaches where immune modulatory macrophages or, or 
better defined um, cells can be can be placed. And I think that's also one of the future directives to us to understand a cell therapy, not only like of, of a gene therapy approaches where a defect metabolic enzyme is replaced, but also as an antifibrotic co-redundant mm -hmm. approach with immune modulatory cells. And I think there's also a lot of things that we will know in the next upcoming years. So uh, that's uh, thank you for that, because that's actually where I want to pass to Karen as an, a specialist in, in fibrosis. So, I mean, there's, there's already out there quite a lot of clinical trials. Some are more limited in their scope, a few patients, uh, but with some of the different cell types that uh, Tobias just mentioned, I mean, uh, fibrotic environment, inflammatory environment is, is really a nightmare if we think mm -hmm. you know, how to treat it. But so how, how do you see this coming? Because one of the things that I see is that a lot of, of these clinical trials, particularly some of with MSCs or even like with, with some of the macrophage, sometimes they are actually contradictory. So some say that there's some effect, some others do not show any effect. So how do you see this from the perspective of what we know about fibrosis and fibrosis regeneration, which is what we don't know as much? If we want to start addressing that, we should think about, you know, the kind of classical understanding of, of how fibrosis manifests. And, you know, I guess what you would naturally understand is that there'd be some sort of injury with inflammation that would activate a kind of an effector cell. And in liver, classically, that would be hepatic stellate cells, which become proliferative. They migrate into the, the hepatocytes and cause damp tissue damage as they, they lay down matrix and cause a scar. And of course, you know, we having thought about, you know, how fibrosis progresses, and we made such um, great inroads into this in terms of uh, understanding hepatic stellate cells and, and how they kind of uh, lay down matrix, and also the signaling pathways that influence this um, proliferative response of stellate cells. But I think what we're now coming around to, and you, you touched on it beautifully at the start, Pedro, is that actually it's a failure of regeneration. So not only do we have this kind of scar and response, we also have all of the cell types surrounding the scar that are also involved. And in terms of this, this idea of an impaired damage response, impaired proliferative response of, it, of the kind of hepatocytes and cholangiocytes, I think that's becoming much more widely accepted. So in effect, fibrosis isn't down to one cell type, as you've already said, it's down to a multiple cells that are involved in this kind of um, pathogenesis. And so how we go about targeting this, I think there are multiple sides of it. So we need to reduce inflammation, that's absolutely key, but also given the massive amount of information regarding um, how uh, stiffness within the liver can influence and um, modulate cell state and damage within the liver. I think we also need to reduce scarring. So we need to look at both modulating inflammation, modulating scarring, be that through reducing stellate cells or somehow um, breaking down matrix. And then thirdly, we need to understand how to improve that regenerative response or repair the regenerative response that's gone wrong. And I think, you know, that's something that is now becoming much more prolific in the um, fibrosis world because of the, the advent of single cell technologies and certainly with spatial localization that allows you to really see 
where these kind of impaired responses in the liver are happening directly in response to the pathophysiology. So I think there's quite a lot to learn um, still, but I do think that there's a lot we can draw from development because that's certainly an area of, if we know how the liver is put together normally, then we'll start to be able to pull together all of these kind of new technologies, these new understanding of the impaired cellular response and say, okay, so if that's part of a normal, normal liver developmental response, can we repair that in an abnormal or impaired response due to injury? So just before I actually take on what you just finished saying, I want to say something that I missed, which is encourage our audience to actually ask questions in the chat. And I'll promise that all of them will be answered, even if they are not answered in, within the session, uh, because we'll post this within with the episode once it's edited. But now, picking on what you just said, which is the developmental biology, I'll just pass this to our specialist, Professor <laughs> Lemegre, uh, uh, Frederick. Uh, so how do we, so taking into account that a lot of the levers we're gonna be repairing or that we want to regenerate are fibrotic, how do we do developmental fibro, uh, developmental, see, I'm already even catched <laughs> by the word. So how do we do developmental biology in a fibrotic scaffold or in a fibrotic environment? So that's a particularly difficult question because we are going from a wrong perturbed environment and we are supposed to go to recreate a, a correct one. So what developmental biology can bring about is to understand at least how you can go to a normal cell. You first have to define what is a normal cell and that's already not so easy. Mm -hmm. and, and most of the work in the last 25, 30 years in developmental biology of the liver has actually been focusing on how you go from progenitor state mm -hmm. uh, towards an adult mature state. And, and here again, the focus was essentially on hepatocytes and cholangiocytes. I'm not saying that other people have not studied other cell types, but when you look at it um, and you, you just go to PubMed and you type uh, development of stellate cells, you know, you don't find so many papers. Mm -hmm. um, development of the mesenchymal tissue in the liver is, is clearly understudied. Um, recently, people, for instance, have been focusing lots of attention on single cell RNA sequencing analysis. And there you see, you know, lots of data like that on hepatocytes, endothelial cells, uh, a bit less on cholangiocytes because the cells are not numerous. And then you see, you know, a few spots and these are all the mesenchymal cells of the liver. Yes. And when you dig into the data, you, you don't figure out what it all is. So we have, and an, there is a huge gap in knowledge in, in development of the mesenchymal cells, which play around, play a role in, in, in fibrotic diseases. Um, and um, my feeling is that uh, developmental biology over the years have, has, has um, generated lots of information how to um, generate mature or, you know, close to mature cholangiocytes, hepatocytes, also at some degree endothelial cells as well. But what is 
critically missing is what is being done in, in, in the non-epithelial cells. Mm. That's, that's a major limitation of the study. And what is also critically missing in my view is, is how those cells interact and, and are connected to each other. So Pedro and I, for instance, have been discussing together uh, a, a very simple question. We have hepatocytes, we can generate hepatocytes, we can generate cholangiocytes, but nobody can bring them really together. And nobody in the developmental biology world can tell you how the two cells connect actually during development. So we can generate cells, we are missing a number of cell types, and we, and, uh, and we cannot even connect them all together. So what can we do except, you know, relying on some pre-built structures like, you know, Pedro, Pedro, you are doing these kind of things. You, you, you start uh, working on a decellularized liver, but what you're doing is somehow what a developmental biologist would not do is, is to start with a pre-built structure and then <laughs> try to fit in the cells because that's not how developmental biology occurs. But it would be one way to circumvent the limitations that developmental biologists have so far not uncovered yet. So taking on that, I mean, that is also one of the focus of our consortium and, and, and regenerative hepatology, which is if we are able to generate bioengineered livers for transplantation, then it doesn't matter their size because you can kind of tailor that if you need to substitute just a metabolic function by 5-10% of the function, pretty much like what was attempted in the clinical trials with hepatocytes and MSC. So small amount, 5-10% size. Or if you actually need to just do an orthotopic transplantation and taking a fibrotic or a cirrhotic liver out and then put, I wouldn't say 100% liver mass because I think from the bioengineering point of view, that's still massive. You're talking about hundreds of billions of cells, but at least 30, 40%, whatever mass can provide the function to keep the patient alive. <laughs> so in that regard, uh, Frederick, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I think we have made big strides in the last decades in uh, developing some of the techniques, getting some of the cells with really high quality being those primary or ES or IPS derived. But what we have not made is really when we're trying to address the problems of hepatic tissue generation, vascular tissue generation, biliary tree generation, and then full integration between all these different tissues and, and, and vascular trees in a bioreactor in, in these scaffolds, this is still what we don't know because this is really trying to replicate the developmental biology mechanisms in vitro in a bioreactor in a way where, that is still kind of unknown to us. I, I can add that I, I, I think since we're now able to actually get some of these things together and have this template of decellularized liver scaffolds, although this is not how developmental biology happens, this is an interesting tool because you're forcing the cells spatially to get mm -hmm. together in certain spaces, because this is what we can do as bioengineers is localize the cells towards certain areas and distribute them depending on uh, different percentages. So you can localize hepatocytes and cholangiocytes and the endothelial cells towards the whole parenchyma, but since you infuse them through different places, so you're going to force the interactions. But then this is, like I said, I think an interesting tool, not only good for the bioengineering of the future uh, livers we want to transplant, but also I think for just, you know, the nitty gritty developmental biology in human cells, uh, when you actually put all this together in the bioreactors and then you try different mechanisms, inducing different growth factors, et cetera, and see what happens when the cells are trying to interact mm -hmm. together. So this, this is, I think, something that the, is the current knowledge of what we have to, 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 to do the bioengineered livers. But taking this further to 
uh, all the scaling up that we need to do for the massive large-scale cell expansion and then integration this into meaningful size bioengineered liver. So it's still something that uh, I think it's, if not decades away, still a lot of years away. Yes, but at the same time, we are, we are facing some kind of difficulty because let me give you an easy example. Uh, developmental biologists in the past have demonstrated that hematopoietic cell in an embryonic liver secrete oncostatin M, and this oncostatin M then promotes differentiation of the hepatocytes. This turned out to be relatively easy to replicate in, in two-dimensional cultures of stem cells. So you put oncostatin M, and the differentiation of the hepatocytes is improved. But, but now we are facing another difficulty. How, how do you do this in, in three dimensions? Coming back to, you, you mentioned the, the, uh, the biliary tree. Well, you know that in development, the biliary tree sends signals to the, mes the mesenchyme around it. And, and so shapes the mesenchyme and so shapes the, uh, the structure of the hepatic artery and, and, and so also shapes the, uh, the presence of various cell types. Um, here we are facing a, a difficulty. This three-dimensional difficulty is, is something where developmental biologists have not been able to truly help the uh, bioengineers at this moment. That's one of the major challenges for us. Actually, it's four dimensions if you consider time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but, but I, I think it is happening, though, because the fact that we can now try to understand the interactions and the crosstalk that happens between these cells, being this in the mouse models or in these organoids, 3D models, bioengineered uh, liver models. I think it will, it, it will really provide us in the next years a wealth of knowledge that might really be helpful in this final quest of uh, bioengineering a liver that we can transplant. But, but there's one thing that I think it will be helpful, not only to Tobias for, for the stem cell or liver cell transplantation, and to also you, Frederick, and me, which is uh, really how to understand how, how all these mechanisms of fibrosis or pro-regenerative mechanisms that need to be activated in the livers can actually help. If we actually take together, and this I'll pass to Karen, what's happening now with hepatitis C positive patients that actually got cured of the virus that had already fibrosis, and that in certain cases we are actually seeing there are regressing in the level of fibrosis they have. Could this be actually the forever trove that we need to understand how do we actually heal the scar tissue? And then we can try to do something about regenerating further a parenchymal tissue that was damaged. I think, I think the hepatitis C story is really interesting though, because um, so, so, you know, so, so hepatitis C, um, again, it depends on the progression of the disease. So, you know, um, people who, who had got hepatitis C and had developed a, a certain stage of fibrosis, so classically, and I get, I'm, not a, I'm not a clinician, but we've done quite a bit in this area. So the staging would be, you know, a staging of six different stages, wouldn't it? So six would be cirrhotic and one would be you know, very mild fibrosis. So I think what, you know, what we shouldn't get mixed up about is the fact that if you're in that sort of stage three, stage four even, then the likelihood is if you remove the virus, even before these wonderful antivirals, the liver would resolve and get better. And so we know that, we know that that works and it would fully get better. The problem is if you'd then gone beyond that point and whatever that stage was or 
you know, whether it was some genetic contribution from a from the person from at an individual level, then even the antivirals that are now there and beautiful and work and completely clear the virus, there are people who have such severe liver damage that it's beyond the point of fully able to repair. So clearly that sort of suggests that the environment, that scar environment, the damage that's there in other cell types is really important in maintaining that sort of pro-fibrotic response, if you like. So even though you've removed the insult, you've still got damage. And in fact, you know, people who have had hepatitis C or hepatitis B and very severe liver damage, and even with HCV where that has the viral load has been completely cleared, they're at a significant risk of developing HCC if mm -hmm. they still have severe cirrhosis. So, so my worry is that, you know, we need to work really closely with clinicians to understand that progressive nature of disease, because, you know, also it's about understanding what, what are we trying to do? You know, how, how are we trying to regenerate the liver? And most times we're asking a very badly injured liver to regenerate because if it's not it will regenerate we know we can we can improve that but most of the time it is this severe liver damage that we're trying to ask the liver to repair itself so so my my sort of cynical um side would say how are we going to improve the way the liver regenerates or even with new cells if we put them in the liver at that stage there's clearly some other other things that we have to get rid of to improve that. So is there a way then to say how far is too far or to determine how far is too far or where is the thin red line of this can still regenerate and it will be better if we actually help or this is too far and the only thing we really have available is transplantation. So is there a way to know that? Do we actually know that? Well, I, I suspect hepatologists would be able to tell you that, you know, that that there is a point, certainly, where there's very little return, very little improvement. Um, and clearly, patients are still treated um, to, to try and improve liver function. But I think, you know, that a hepatologist would tell you there is a point where that becomes less effective. Um, and it will be, you know, in the severely damaged environment. But I guess, you know, so so taking it back to, to I know that we, you know, we we sort of, there's a lot of single cell data out there and thinking about the kind of the mechanisms, the signaling, the closed cell contact, you know, the computational methods that have come out of single cell biology, I think will really improve our understanding of you know, cell connectivity and the pathways and the ligands that are responsible for neighboring cells signaling. Now, maybe, you know, in that context of that severe liver tipping point mm. of, of this liver so, so badly damaged, we might be able to understand how we can um, improve those impaired mechanisms by looking at these kind of computational methods of cell-cell contact and link in with the sort of work that yourself, Frederick and Tobias are doing to, to improve that. So yeah, one... yeah, you're somehow alluding to the situation where you have reached an irreversible state, right? Um, 
I, I'm what I'm. I trained as an MD, but I'm not a clinician, so I cannot tell you how the clinician can address that. But phenomena of irreversibility have been studied quite well by a number of uh, developmental biologists, including some who teamed up with computational biologists. Mm -hmm. Because when you define the cells, uh, I mean, in terms of gene regulatory networks, um, these networks, you know, they evolve, they switch from to one state to the other. Uh, for instance, during differentiation or during day differentiation or when they move through a diseased state. But you can computationally really measure when you have reached the state of irreversibility of yes or no. So you can maybe define this stage of irreversibility at the clinical level with a patient. But I'm quite sure that in the future, by looking at profiles of gene expression and strong computational methods, we will be able to define whether we have or have not yet reached such stage of irreversibility. Yeah, yeah but may maybe I, I can step in here. So I fully agree to you, Frederick, but I, I still want to wish, let's say, mm. that if we if we interfere, maybe this, this one cellular compartment can change this a little bit, which might not be irreversibly damaged. So be it maybe cellate cells, so be it sinusoidal endothelial cells. And we kind of reprogram those to, to a state that these might then influence other yep. neighboring cells that might also slightly switch. I think what we have learned from, from all these developmental studies, but also the stem cell differentiation or stem cell transplantation studies is that, that we have a distinct phenotype in our in vitro dish, but this might change in vivo depending on the environment rapidly, very fast, and also, let's say, timely in, in this respect during then um, being exposed to, to the stimuli of, of, of the neighborhood. And I I'm, I'm far away from understanding how this might happen, but I still want to wish that um, we, we might have to like, like a stepwise um, repair or regeneration of, of different cellular compartments, even in those very serotic livers, where we then have at least a partial amelioration of, of hepatocellular function. And I think for, for the liver, it's really key importance that you have a basolateral to apical polarization, that you can take up substances, metabolize, and kick them off. And if, if you see these very cirrhotic livers, then, then some parts of, of the liver lobe might be just not be able to export something into the biliary tree because it's, it's so just blocked. But as I mentioned, if you can stepwise regress this a bit, maybe then hepatocellular function also can be plastic and, and can, can re, re resolve. So at least I want to wish this. <laughs> Maybe uh, stepwise cell therapies, taking that into consideration and those mechanisms. Yeah, which is or, some or modulators of, of yeah, with um, small regeneration, regeneration, whatever. Yeah. At the same time, you're giving an, a fantastic example, Tobias, when you mention you need to have hepatocytes which have the, the appropriate apicobasal mm. uh, polarity. How do you get that? You need endothelial cells around. Yeah. So you want to regenerate hepatocytes. You are not going to succeed if you are not going to restore endothelial cells. You are not going to restore endothelial cells if you don't have a good blood flow. And, and so that's, this brings us back to the main difficulty. We still need a lot of information on how all cells, not just one cell type, not just the main cell type, but all cell type, how do they coordinately develop? This, these are one of the major limitations 
limitations of most of the work in developmental biology. We have been looking at most of the time at one cell type at the, uh, at the same time. Now single cell technology is progressively bringing more information about the coordinated regulation of the cell types. The difficulty is that people are slightly overwhelmed with the amount of data and that they have to be able to extract what is critically uh, important for being to allow people to transpose it into a therapeutic strategy or even into a bioengineering strategy. So that's the limitation, one of the limitations today. Too many data is good, but too many is hard to interpret. So uh, I would just like to close before, before we close to just ask one of the questions we have in the chat and I'll just yeah. ask, ask it generally. So whoever wants to, to answer it, please go ahead. So we talk about inflammation of the liver. Is this both good and bad for the liver as the organ is constantly under insult and may be required for function? Oh, good question. So who wants to go ahead and, and provide a, an answer to this? Well, I, I think it, you know, it is both good and bad. You know, I think there have been attempts at, um, you know, for example, I think was it the TGF beta inhibitors that um, many, many years ago, uh, people tried to use to improve liver fibrosis and they actually made it worse. So that suggests that, you know, from, from an, um, understanding the, the kind of inflammatory insult and, and actually, so it turns out that inflammation is both good and bad. You need it for correct regeneration, correct um, function of the liver. But clearly it's also there to, you know, to get rid of the bad stuff as well. So, so you, can't, you can't just ablate inflammation and get a fully repaired liver, sadly. <laughs> Thank you, totally agree. So our time is up. Uh, I wanna finish by thanking our three experts and three good friends. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this. And just as a corollary of this, so if your liver is just gone, so wait a few more years and we'll be able to bioengineer one for you with the help of these three experts we have here. <laughs> At least that's what we're all banking on. Yes, not so, the mystic view. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So again, thank you for all tuning in and we see you next time. Bye-bye and thank you. Bye.